cards is a lifestyle. Sports cards and we live now. Jeremy Lee in the building and every guest that you ever needed. Sports cards after hours keep the hobby heated. Updates hobby talk like you never seen it. Sports cards live and I could ever beat it. Sports cards is a lifestyle. Sports cards and we live now. Welcome to another episode of Sports Cards Live with your host, Jeremy Lee. All right, everybody, welcome to episode number 147 of Sports Cards Live. It is Saturday night, June the 25th, 2022, and my name is Jeremy Lee. I do want to thank Nick Frerichs for joining from the Wharf Sports Cards and now PWCC for joining on the special episode we had on Wednesday. Thank you to Nick. Great time with you. Also want to thank Ty and Mike from Bench Clear Media for having me on their Hobby Palooza event earlier today. That was fun and it's going on all day tomorrow. Check it out on the Bench Clear Media YouTube channel. Heads up to everybody, the fifth and final episode of the Tag Reveal is going to be on Saturday, July the 9th. Be sure to come tune in and check that out. And next Saturday on Sports Cards Live, our guest will be Les Edwards. He is also known as at Leslie Snipes 187 on Instagram. And we'll, we will be having an after hours episode next week with Grotman Cards joining with his father. That should be a lot of fun. I would like to shout out the center stage app that you see on the ticker right now. Download that app in the app store for quick comps, whether you are strolling through card shows or pricing your cards if you're a vendor. The app is continuously improving, so help me out. So uh, support these hobbypreneurs as they try to make the hobby even better than it already is. Shout out to channel sponsor, Pristine Auction. PristineAuction.com is one of the most trusted sports memorabilia and collectible auction sites. Auctions on PristineAuction.com start just $1 each day. And there are thousands of items available. They also have thousands of sports cards Auction starting with no reserve in the weekly sports card auction, which runs Sunday to Sunday, has everything from vintage, ultra modern, raw, graded, singles, wax, everything, the whole shebang. Head over to auction to pristineauction.com. And if you're not yet registered, use the code SCL to register and you will receive $10 off your first purchase. Finally, shout out to the Hobbies Middleman Service Trade Safe, your risk-free alternative for trades and buy-sells from any peer-to-peer social media platform or marketplace tradesf has created a service a process and a team that makes remote dealing much safer than ever before it is now fully digital and the website was just completely relaunched it's easier to use than ever before check out tradesafehub.com i want to thank all you subscribers viewers podcast listeners if you're not yet subscribed to sports cards live take a moment and do so happy to have you here tonight as always your comments your questions are in play Let's get to tonight's guest. He started out in the hobby in 1985, going to the corner store to buy Topps baseball packs. He was looking for Dwight Gooden and Eric Davis rookies. I remember those days myself. His favorite athletes are Magic Johnson and Josh Allen. His favorite teams are the Buffalo Bills, the New York Yankees, the Orlando Magic, originally from Jamestown, New York, and currently hailing in Orlando, Florida, Let's bring him out, Nathan Ballant. Nate, how are you? Welcome to Sports Cards Live. Hey, Jeremy. I'm doing great. Thank you. And thanks a lot for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure, man. It's it's great to have you. Uh, You know, as um, who said it here in the comments, JP says right here, the collector-centric episodes are my favorite. And, uh, you know, 
I enjoy them too. Obviously, I host a lot of industry insiders, other content creators, and working through this series of five episodes with Tag and uh, had to postpone the most recent one, which allowed me to sneak in a couple of these episodes and break that up, which I, I think is a great opportunity. So I'm super happy to have you here, Nate. You know, great. on the YouTube thumbnail for this episode, uh, you actually sent me an image and I used it, which is a graphic of a whole bunch. Uh, well, actually, there's not that many on there because you repeated them. But some of the best 1948 Leaf baseball cards, including my favorite, I think it's my favorite baseball card of all time, the Jackie Robinson. Um, what is the significance of that set to you? Hmm. Well, I didn't I didn't even know that was your favorite card. That's interesting. It's it's definitely way up there for me, too. Um, it's uh, you know, I think it's one of the sets that, uh, you know, really kind of epitomizes for me the, um, you know, the kind of art and history element that makes collecting so fun for me. The, um, you know, just the aesthetic of the set, I think, is tremendous. I, I really like, you know, very colorful sets. I, I think there's some great artwork in, in those sets as well, set against, you know, really vivid backgrounds um it was a really historic set i think it was uh really the the first uh significant post-war set um so occupies a, a very important historical place in the in the collecting canon visually beautiful it's got the jackie rookie it's got technically stan musuals <laughs> spawn yeah that's one of my favorites i'm just phenomenal card technicolor right i mean the spawn and some of the others i mean it's just just gorgeous. And, you know, I've heard some people compare the set to kind of like an Andy Warhol look. And I, I do think there's a lot of a lot of similarities that can be drawn there. So beautiful set, historic set, phenomenal rookies. It's what's not to love. I hear you. It, it It's a beautiful set. I love it, too. I The Warren Spawn is uh, one of my favorite cards in my collection, too. And of course, I love the the Jackie is, is such a great card. Um, okay, we're going to say hello to a few people. Thanks, JP. Frank Estella, great to see you, says another A-list guest. That's uh, that's for you, Nate. Uh, Jake, good to see you. Justin Vick says, emotional roller coaster. I need Nathan to cry on this episode. Do it, Jeremy. <laughs> well, I, and just before we went live, I kind of ran through the agenda with Nate. I said, okay, and then we're going to talk about the emotional roller coaster stuff. And I've got I got like 10 sub bullets under that. So we have a few, a few things to, to touch on there. Chris C., what's going on? Collectors United, love it. Skeppy, what's going on? Spurs Cards is here. Brad31 says, let's talk collecting. And Chris C. says, it's a good buying time on some cards, it seems, but I still can't afford the Jackie 48. Yeah, I mean, that card's that card's expensive in, in any condition. Do you have cards from the set, Nate? I do, yeah. Yeah, that, uh, that little wallpaper that I put together was all, um, those are all cards that I have. And, uh, yeah, you know, the way the way I collect largely with with the vintage stuff is, um, you know, I really try to focus on kind of, you know, key Hall of Famers from sets that I, I really enjoy. And so that set being toward the top of my list, I've, I've tried to acquire and, and I, I think have at this point, you know, most of the ones that I want from that set, including I, I mean, one of the other ones I really love is the Ted Williams from that set. What a Great swinging game. image, just beautiful color. I mean, it's it. You know, if I have to pick a most beautiful baseball card, that, that clearly is in the top five, if not top three. It is a special card for sure. I've, I've, I only have one Ted, only I have one Ted Williams card, which would be his rookie, and I absolutely love it. But you know, it's black and white. It's not quite as vibrant, not nearly as beautiful as the as forty eight leaf. 
But then I think to myself, do I want to go grab the 48 leaf as well when I'm not, you know, as far as baseball Hall of Famers go, I collect like rookie cards of my favorite Hall of Famers from baseball, but I don't necessarily go further than that unless it's like, you know, Pete Rose second year I have because it's his own card, right? right? I yeah. like though I like those second year cards in baseball where their rookie card was shared. Right. Nolan Ryan's another great example. There's several, um, but I don't know that I. If I see, here's the thing, and you probably know how this works. As soon as you go outside of your focus, it opens you up to to almost wanting, if not having to buy even more cards that you aren't planning to buy, and then your collection can go in all sorts of directions. Yeah, extremely dangerous. For sure. <laughs> yeah. And hey, I've, I've seen your your Ted rookie. I, I know you've shown it on the show before and it's it's beautiful, really well centered, beautiful copy. That's a card I'd really like to get at some point as well. Haven't haven't been able to corral one yet, but now it's a great card. And I hear you, man, sticking to, to your knitting and, and your collecting is critical. And once you open a door, it, it, it can be pretty hard to, to reclose it and lead you down some, you know, pretty far down a path that you thought you were just taking a couple steps down. So so if that's the way you're doing it, stick with it, man. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. But it's tempting. It's so tempting yeah. to go kind of to veer outside of the of, of your, I don't call it your lane because, you know, your lane, the lane is constantly moving, getting wider, narrower. I think, uh, you know, as collectors, it's, it's healthy to be able to, you know, almost every step of the way, see something different further down the lane because you just might want to be flexible and leave yourself open to it. But that can be, that can definitely be dangerous as well. You mentioned my Ted Williams rookie and um, I love the card. I bought that from a guy who, I don't know if you're familiar with him. His name is Brady Hill. Are you familiar with Brady Hill? Uh, yeah, I, I, a little bit. Uh, yeah. And I, I think I'm, I think I may have seen part of the episode. You had him on at one point, correct? Well, I had him on collectible live okay. about, about six months ago, probably. Yeah. And, um, but he's somebody that I used to go, when I'd go to the national, I would go straight to his table. He always set up with a guy named Jeff from card country. And mm-hmm. between these two guys, they had some of the finest vintage cards in the room, like on a, on a like square foot per square footage basis. Like they had this Brady Hill. I mean, he has, you know, a showcase filled with T206 Ty Cobbs and maybe another one with 50 with 33 Gaudi Babe Ruths. And wow, you know, wow, I'm exaggerating, wow. maybe not a whole showcase, but half <laughs> a right. showcase. Like just right. a, a lot of selection. And I, I think you guys spent some time maybe talking about eye appeal and the importance of eye appeal as well, right? Which is another great right. reason to to visit his showcase if if he emphasizes that because you can visit a lot of showcases at the national or any other show and see a lot of great cards, but if you're someone that really focuses in heavily on eye appeal, you see a lot of cases that that don't quite meet the standard for sure. So you have a great memory, uh, Nate, because, yeah, we talked about that and it was really Brady and and this gentleman, Jeff, uh, who's a physician um, and sold a bunch of his cards to, if I recall, to to finance like a, a play on Broadway or something like that. So I don't know to what extent Jeff is still involved, but Brady is definitely involved. I know he'll be at the expo, but these guys are the ones that really opened my eyes. And this goes back to about 2013 or so really opened my eyes to, to the, to, to strong for the grade and, and to being, and, you know, maybe it was great salesmanship on their part, but making me willing to pay above comps for a card that was definitely stronger than recent sales of cards in the same grade. 
And mm, um, yeah. so, yeah, that's what that they're the ones that I, I credit them for teaching me, if you will, not teaching about what I appeal. That's something that you can recognize, but teaching me that it's OK to pay more and not to worry about comp so much. Otherwise, you're just going to miss out on some great cards. I mean, in, in my view with that, they, they got you ahead of the curve because, I mean, I, I feel like that's been one of the dominant trends in vintage collecting over the last year or two is is the move toward really high eye appeal and strong for the grade collecting um, among a lot of people. And I think, you know, in, in um, w- what I've observed, there's been a real move in, in pricing, you know, in a, in a divergence um, between the high eye appeals and, you know, not uncommonly now something maybe graded a three outselling, uh, you know, a beautiful three outselling, uh, you know, a less than average five, for example, much less, much less a four. Right. And I think that is appropriate. Like, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I saw a 53 mantle selling a couple nights ago. And unfortunately, I didn't buy it. And I wanted it because, okay, it was a PSA one. Hmm. And it had, it had a staple that had been in it once at one time in the top border. So you had these two very small holes. If this thing didn't have that staple in it, I'd say that the card would have been graded like a six. Mm, and yeah. comps, and I unfortunately for me, I went to the PSA website, I looked at the auction prices, and I saw that the comps were like around $2,000, $2,200. So I think I bid up to $2,550 maybe. And then I, I I ducked out and it went up at the very, in the last couple seconds. And it ended up selling for like, I, I'm, I'm, I don't remember exactly, like 3200 or something like that. And yeah. had I not checked comps on PSA ones, yeah. I probably would have bought the card. And right. I and and I, I actually put out a post on Instagram not too long ago saying I just bought a card without checking comps. Like, don't worry about comps so much, everybody, because you might not buy a card that you will then regret not buying. That just happened to me with a mantle after I did it what I would call the right way. Now, listen, that right. only applies to some cards. Some cards, you know, commodity cards trading all the time. Maybe check comps, but um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I got to let you know, and everybody else, in about a minute, I have to bid on a card on eBay. I'm watching it right now. My alarm, my my one minute alarm is, I'm just going to cancel that so it doesn't go off. But, uh, oh, two, one. Yeah, don't miss that, man. Yeah. We've all been there. You can hear that. <laughs> so that's telling me to watch my, watch the auction. So I've got 50 seconds to bid on this card. We'll see if I win. And if I do, I'll show you guys what it is. Nothing huge, just a fun little card that I'm working on. Um, let's say hello to Grotman, uh, who will be joining uh, me on After Hours next week. As previously mentioned, James Fertittag, welcome to the show. Justin Vick, opening Pandora's BCW shoebox, right, as you allow more cards to kind of come within your wheelhouse. Frank makes a great point. Let's not forget the 1948 Leaf Babe Ruth card, which I think was his last playing days card. Or post. No, that's post playing days, isn't right. it? Yeah, much post. Okay. I just need to set my my max bid here, $55.55. There's 10 seconds left on the countdown. I'll read a quick uh, comment here from Brad. Second year cards are my favorite. Okay, hold on. I need need four. (laughs) Don't miss that bid there. Bid is in. The bid is in. I'm the highest bidder. I think I want to let it, you know, of course, this takes a good like 20 seconds nowadays on. Right. That's right. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So Brad says second year cards are my favorite. Most of my life couldn't afford the rookies. Second year still gives you a youthful look for the 50s. Tops baseball often have the same head. That's a good point. And sometimes for some of those players, especially he's getting to this, like, like Tom Seaver is a good example. Uh, Rod Carew is a good example. Nolan Ryan is mentioned. 
uh, Carlton Fisk. All these guys are, they have shared rookie cards. Yeah. Yeah. I, I prefer the second years of all those guys as well, for sure. I won the card for $33. I had bid $55 and 55 cents. It's a hockey card. It's a trilogy patch card of uh, Yaramir Yager. That's what I just picked up for 33 bucks. Wow. That's great, man. And yeah. it's really nice when it comes in at like, uh, what, 60% of your max bid. You, you know you were the right person to buy that card when <laughs> when you were willing to pay a lot more. Let's, That's You awesome. know what? I, I'm glad that you called that. Let's talk about that for one second, Nate, because I heard someone say this the other day. I forget who it was on what platform, and it, it really resonated with me. When you buy a card, now I... When I bid on eBay, my bid comes in with two seconds left. That's when I place my, usually when I place my first and last bid. Now, let's say a card, and this just happened to me a couple of weeks ago. There was a Wayne Gretzky card. It's sitting on my shelf. It's like, it's it's right, right. It's that card right there, right there. That card I wanted so badly. I couldn't stop thinking about it for the week leading up. When I placed my bid, the card was at like 250 bucks. I put in a high bid of $999.99. I was willing to pay almost a thousand, but I wasn't willing to pay a thousand for it. So I bid $999.99. I won the card for $416. That was the, my winning bid. Yeah. So here I am. I'm willing to pay basically a grand for the card and I get it for $415. Yeah. Am I am I up $585? Like <laughs> yeah. I, obviously no one put $585 in my pocket, but I felt like I saved myself up to $585. What's the psychology there in your opinion? First of all, that, hey, that's more money for your hobby budget right there, right? That that extra goes straight into other cards now. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I feel a little conflicted when that happens. On one hand, I feel like maybe I was a little crazy that I was willing to pay that much. And, you know, am I out of step with the market a little bit? Um, on the other hand, I feel great because I'm usually really thoughtful about my max bid. And, you know, I've Every once in a while, I'll buy something without checking comps, but that's that's really unusual, and it's usually just a pretty small card. So if it's something that I'm really going after and and you know at all substantial, I spend a decent bit of time thinking about it, and um, you know, so I in that context, if I'm willing to to pay more, I feel like I just got a great deal if if I get it below, and you know, it, it's either that or you know, sometimes there's a card that you just really kind of need for your collection. You know, I mean, there's some of them where it's like, all right, you know, I'd like to get this, but I'm not going to lose sleep if I don't. And then there's some where as soon as that auction comes up, this is the card I need. I mean, this this kind of checks all the boxes for me. And so I'm going to stretch on this one, right? And so sometimes when you do that, I think maybe you can anticipate a little bit that you might be a little above. Um, although sometimes you do that and you still lose it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It, yeah. it, for me, it really just comes down to do I, how badly do I want the card? And in that, in that case, I wanted this card super badly, more than I think I've wanted a card all year. And then it's, and then the next question is, so the first one is, how badly do I want the card? And the second one is, am I willing to, to, to go to battle for it? So when I put out a bid of a thousand bucks on a card that should sell for about 400, your hope in the back of your mind is that you don't, it does, you know, that thing doesn't go around. Then it, it, it flashes up and you're like, oh, I just paid 920 bucks for a card that I, that I wanted to pay a lot less for. Yeah. I'm going to buy the card still, but it just tells me that two people want that. Or were, if two people are willing to spend at least that amount of money, you know, it might be worth close to that. But it does, it's like yeah. even saying that it might be worth, who cares what it's worth? 
it's worth to me what I pay for it. And it happened to me once, Nate, similar story. I need, this was a card I like needed because I was working on a set. The set has 97 cards in it and there were three one-on-ones. It's from national, it's a national mm. treasures numbers patch set a parallel each yeah. card numbered to the player's Jersey. And then uh, it was like a, a basic no name play. Well, not known, but Sergey Varlamov, a goaltender. I don't even think he's in the league anymore. Mm. Um, the card was, you know, should have been maybe 250 bucks. I put in a bid. I think I put in a bid of like 11, 11, 11, $1,111 and 11 cents. It was at like $225 when I placed that bid eBay churns and it comes back. You lost the auction by $25. I was outbid by one increment. And I just felt so bad for the guy that put in an even crazier. Than <laughs> right. I did. right. Absolutely. Fun, funny enough, several years later, I ended up finding the card on eBay and I pick it up for like 200 bucks. Wow. So. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, it's interesting. You see that sometimes and, you know, you'll get some outlier and, you know, auction dynamics are, are fascinating and you, you can get some really unusual sale prices sometimes that are just outside the market because it just takes two, right? And it, it's probably a decent time to mention that, you know, we're talking here in, in the biggest night of the history of the hobby, of course, with the LeBron logo man for sale. Um, I'm joking, but, you know, a lot of eyes on that auction tonight. And that's one where, you know, think thinking about auction dynamics, it takes two guys and it's, I'm just taking a look at it here. Occasionally it's at 2 million bucks right now. So 2.4 with, with BP. Um, and that could end at 2.4 or it could, it could end at 10, you know, I mean, if, if Drake and shine decide they both want it and, you know, I think they got pretty or whoever else that we don't know about really wants it with really deep pockets. I mean, that, that thing could end up anywhere. Yeah. Be, it'll be definitely be fun to fun to see that. So keep us posted, please throughout. If, yeah. uh, even if you see a bid come in, just let, I'm curious to know as the bids come, when do they go into extended bidding or are it, they in it already? It, they just, they're in it now. They just went in at, at 10 Eastern. So just, you know, 20 minutes ago when extended and the bid just bumped up a few minutes ago. So there's, I, I get the golden format is card by card ending. And with a new bid at this point, at least it's an additional 30 minutes. So there's 28 minutes left on it at, at 2 million. Yeah. All right. Well, keep us keep us posted. A couple right. more comments. Uh, we said good evening to Grotman. James, we said good. Okay, I'm a little bit behind here. I wanted to go to who came, who, who came in. Oh, Brad here says, we did that one second year card. Sorry about that. Justin Vick, first solo card is a great argument for collecting second year cards. Yeah, I agree, Justin. It's um, you know almost glad to like enlighten anybody who never thought of that before because number one, they're cheaper. And number two, they're nicer in almost every case. Uh, and they have that little trophy on them too, which is often really cool for tops. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Chris loves the 69 Ryan. Yeah, that's a that's a sick card. I love it. MLW Fishing Man, good evening to you. Brad says second year when they have the tops trophies. There we go. Exactly. Are even better than the rookie. I mean, you can't really argue that. They are better looking cards. But does better always equal more valuable? I don't think it does. Yeah, not in this case. Um, you know, I think I think in in a lot of those cases that you're talking about from the '60s, especially, you know, there were a lot of examples of that where you had the multi rookie cards and then really nice second year cards. I think the spread between the rookie and the second year is less than it normally is, but the rookie still is clearly more valuable, despite what you're saying. Which I I certainly I'm totally in your camp, which is I. I much rather have the second year card and in some of those cases do. And I'd, I have very few multi rookies, especially, you know, like 
you know, I never like to talk poorly about a card because somebody loves that card, right? And, but I mean, just for me with my aesthetic, like the Pete Rose, like really small. I mean, the Nolan Ryan, maybe I can get on board. At least it's half the card, but, yeah. um, you know, so I don't know. D different things for different peoples. And, and, you know, obviously more people prefer the rookie still because it's the rookie, it's, it's more valuable. But, um, but yeah, I, I love the Gold Cup second year as, as the first solo. So do I. So do yeah. I. Hello to you, Lee Haskins. Appreciate that. Welcome as always. Thanks to Brad and Chris congratulating me on the Agger. Grotman says the Agger is awesome. I won a similar card today at auction that I bid way, way over on. Yeah, I, I bought that Jagger tonight because I acquired a partial set of those cards from somebody about eight months ago or so, and he didn't have the Jagger, and that's one that I uh, that I needed for the set. So happy to get it for what I think was a pretty good price. Joe has a question for you, Nate. He says, do you grade cards or only buy cards that are already graded? Where do you feel the future of grading is headed? Hmm. Uh, no, I, I buy, I definitely buy raw cards as well. Um, you know, a couple of years ago when we were all, many people were buying raw cards and grading them and selling them and all that, you know, I, I did a little bit of that. I, I never got too into it. Um, but definitely did some of it, especially with some, you know, not ultra modern, but kind of more modern basketball stuff. But, but even on the vintage side, um, I tend not to do it with, with kind of bigger, more expensive cards, but I love having raw vintage cards in my collection and being able to actually touch them and, you know, kind of handle them a little bit, you know, it's typically lower grade stuff. And that's one of the beauties of collecting that stuff is you can hold it and not be concerned that the, slightest touch is going to decrease the value by two thirds or something. So, you know, being able to hold, smell, touch that old card, I think is great. So I do graded and non-graded in terms of the future of grading. I mean, I don't know if I'm, if I'm an expert on that. I mean, it's obviously all been turned on its head here over the last year or two with the shutdown and seems like we're reopening now. I mean, I, I, I think grading is, is great as much as I love raw cards. You know, I, I think it's been a huge part of you know, some of the, the evolution of the, of the hobby over the, you know, the last many years, it, it allows you to really transact remotely in a way that I feel like is incredibly difficult without grading. So I think it clearly has a permanent, prominent place in the hobby, and it's going to stay that way. Automation would seem like it's certainly going to be part of where grading is headed going forward so that you know, you have a little less uh, subjectivity and variability in the grading. Um, but, you know, beyond that, I don't know. Do you have views on that one, Jeremy? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think it's important to remember why grading came about in the first place. And you alluded to it there. The reason grading first came onto the scene was because of the advent of the Internet. Mm -hmm. And people were now buying cards sight unseen remotely, as right. you said. And yeah. grading gave you that that third party opinion on what the card was, what the condition of the card was so that you didn't need to just trust the seller not to send you a card with an undisclosed crease or what, what have you. So that's why grading really started. Now it's taken on a life of its own and really become such a major part of the hobby. We, you know, most people have graded cards. Most, most people that I know at least have, have graded cards. As for the future of it, I think like you met, you, you, alluded to automated automation and you know i've been profiling this company tag on the channel here that is going to be i think the leader in automated grading and i'm kind of looking at it as you know you're going to have manual grading companies which we all know who they are they've been around for a long time you know and then we're going to have automated grading and it's kind of going to be like 
two different service offerings, how those two service offerings coexist and how the hobby uh, accepts the new, the automated versus the manual time will tell, but uh, you know, technology enters into every industry for the most part. And the fact that it's finally coming into the hobby, as far as grading goes, I think is just a natural evolution. And I think eventually, you know, it, it's just like how grading was, was, was viewed when it first came on the scene is like, not even the internet was first viewed as a trend, right? Yeah, we all know right. how that went. So yeah. anyway, I talk yeah. about grading enough uh, over the last few weeks on the show. <laughs> right. so let's, uh, but let's see what Lee says. He says, I also say the same on, on grading company just bought it to just bought today at Chantilly card to a BVG eight Roger Staubach rookie for 1300. The comps for PSA were around 2000 card looks better than a PSA eight. And that just speaks to the inconsistency of manual grading and between the companies and who is an eight to one company, the same as an eight to another. So I, you know, but it also allows for some arbitrage, which Lee Haskins feel he, he capitalized on today because he bought a for 1300. He bought a card that was nicer than what usually sells for 2000. So congrats yeah. to you, Lee Haskins. I think that's a great buy spur cards. I remember that story post. Oh, that one of me putting in that price or buying a card for way more than the Gretzky card. Uh, yeah. Getting a card that you want for a fraction of what you're going to pay is always great. It really is. Cause you know, you, you, you expose yourself to having to spend X amount. Like I just put in a bit of 55. I got it for 33. I'm up 20 bucks. That's lunch tomorrow. Sort of thing, you know, thank <laughs> That's you. Right. Yeah. Thank you, Yager. Thank you. Yager. Okay. What does Brad say? The other side of that coin is don't go crazy when you're the under, when you are the underbidder, although you don't necessarily know if you're the underbidder, says the winner may have bid way over what they got it for. You didn't lose by a few dollars most of the time. Yeah, that's a good point. That is. Yeah, I, I tell myself that a lot. What You know, when you just barely lose the auction and it's a card you really wanted and you're like, man, I really would have paid an extra hundred bucks or whatever for that card. Um, but yeah, you have to remind yourself that it it might have actually been an extra thousand dollars or, you know, whatever, you know, who knows what that winning bidder was, was willing to actually pay for it. I think that's a great point. Yeah, for sure. And it's funny. You said what that, what that winning bidder was willing to pay for it. It's not, you know, like I've placed bids like that where I'll put in the bid, but I sure don't want to, I don't want to spend that much money, but I'm putting in that bid because if I have to, I will. You know, right, it's right. really weird. If somebody forces your hand, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> JG says 50% off sale for a lot of nice cards around that $500 to $1,000 range right now. Great time to buy. Yeah, I'm hearing a lot of that great time to be buying, especially if you're, listen, if you're, it's a great time to buy compared to, you know, December 2020 until, until now, but it's not a great time to buy when you're comparing it to 2010 to 2019, but history right. is history. We can only move forward. Chris says, I paid above comms for a 96 Kobe Chrome because it has zero greening. It's hard to find that way. Well, that's an example of eye appeal. That is saying, I'm going to pay more than comps because there's something special about this copy in this grade. And to me, that is a savvy buyer. I think Chris is a savvy purchaser for making that move. You agree? Yeah, completely agree. Absolutely. Yeah. If it with those cards, you know, the, the greening is something that just for me makes a tremendous difference in the appeal of the card. And, you know, I, I am not really interested in having one that's green. So yeah, if, if it's has to go for more without green, then, then that's, that's certainly that way. You know, I've kind of, I've steered 
a little clear of some of those cards because that concerns me a little bit, you know, just personally. And, you know, there's enough other stuff that I enjoy collecting that um, I, I haven't gone too heavily into those first couple years of Topps Chrome because they concern me a little. But I completely agree. For those that I have bought or would buy, absolutely would pay more for, for no green. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, Skeppy has a question here. Let's see. Explain the feeling when it flips the other way and sells for significantly more than your bid. Makes you wonder what you did with research or if it was just a super fanatic for that card. So that's a great call out, Skeppy. And the reason why is because I think a lot of us, especially hockey collectors, experienced this about a month or two months ago when PC collectibles, uh, PC sports cards had a, a consignment on their U on their eBay account and they sold all these 2012 Fleer Retro essential credentials and PMGs and all these amazing hockey inserts. And like, you know, essential credentials can be numbered to one, two, three, four, five, up to like 40 something in hockey. And anyway, I went into that week thinking I was about to spend all my money for the year. I was only able to buy a card for about 300 bucks because everything I bid on went for like 50% more or end up. I mm -hmm. wasn't even close. And so right. to Skeppy's comment, you know, it didn't make me wonder about research. These cards are so rare that you just, you don't know what they're going to go for. It's, it really is just going to go to the highest bidder on that day, whatever yeah. that is. So how did I, you know, but to the questions like, you know, the feeling was, wow, I'm just never going to own this card. I'm right. priced out of it, so I better find something else to buy. And one thing I love to right. say, Nate, is that like when you want a card and you don't get it because you're outbid, I just say to myself, there's always more cards. You know, Unless it's a one-of-one one that you need for some reason, yeah. there's always more cards. Anything right. you want to add? Absolutely. No, I think I think that's well summarized. Yeah, you know, sometimes you kind of hope that maybe that sale was was an outlier and you might still have a chance. But if it's selling for way above what you feel like you were willing to pay for it, most often my primary feeling is uh, probably not going to have that card. It's probably passed me by. <laughs> right. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Chris C tells Lee Haskins, nice buy in the stawback. I like SGC as far as grading because PSA way overpriced. Joe says, Nate, oh, we already got that question. Skeppy is amazes me. People buy, people buy rookie cards, pay a premium, and they don't even like the card. But that, see, that sort of, I've said this before, if you watch enough, and I want your opinion on this too, Nate, but I have very few cards in my collection that I don't like the look of, but they're important enough for me to want to own them. So maybe they don't look great, but I consider them important cards in the history of sports card collecting and the right. hobby. So I it, like to for that, it doesn't amaze me that I own that card. It's few and far between. But if it's just like that's if it's you know a certain Hall of Famer who I want represented by the rookie card. Yeah. But if it's just a card that is for uh, like I'm not going to start collecting a set of patch cards from a recent year unless I really like the looks of it. Right. Yeah. So you know a card a card like that for me that I have. Um really gone back and forth on and, and continue to be torn about is the magic and bird rookie. Um, you know, and I, that to me is an example of what you're talking about in basketball collecting. It feels like one of the very most iconic cards, obviously very, very important card one. And, you know, you mentioned it at the outset, magic was my guy growing up, you know, it's, he was my first favorite sports hero and, 
you know, if I have to pick an all-time favorite, it's him. There's absolutely no way I'm not going to have a Magic Johnson rookie in my collection. But aesthetically, you know, I mean, I don't love that card. It's, you know, it's it's kind of dark. Obviously, it's the tr- perforated triptych style. The players are very small. The, the Magic pose is decent. Birds is kind of awkward. And so, I mean, it just... In terms of like being a magic rookie and, and and a bird rookie who also, you know, incredibly significant player. So I've always been torn. Like I, I wish that overall was a little better looking card, but I've had one. The the way I, I ultimately and and I just got it recently, but I, I what I decided there was to make that card a, a little more appealing to me and a little more special to me. I ended up um selling the one that I had, which was a PSA seven. And I uh, purchased a car, uh, one that's signed by the three players. I don't autograph collect all that much autograph cards. Um, I certainly have some in my collection, but that was one where I felt like I don't love the aesthetic and overall eye appeal. But if you put the three signatures on there, it makes it uh, that much more significant. It adds a whole other aesthetic element for me. So you know, along the lines of the question and, and your response like that, that's one that's kind of the epitome of those sort of questions in my head and, and the way that I dealt with it with that card. Oh, I agree completely with everything you said. Um, the only the only sort of difference in my outlook on that card, the Magic Bird Irving, is that it's grown on me so much now that, you know, I look at it and, and I, I do love the card. And I, I bought my first copy of that card the day after Magic announced publicly that he had contracted the HIV virus. Wow. I knew of one for sale in, 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 the, in where, I was, where I grew up at the LCS hmm. and uh, bought that card the next day because I just figured someone's going to buy it and he might die and all this stuff and I better get it before it's too late. And that would have been, what year was that? Like 19... 91 or something like that. Yeah, I think, I think it's that's like, about, yeah, 90, 91, something. Yep. 35, 30 years ago or so. And uh, that's the, I've owned that card that long. And I you have still have it. I, I, I had it graded. Yeah. It came back in eight. I sold it for some wow. reason and replaced it with another eight PSA. Wow. So okay. Yeah. I don't have that exact copy anymore. I kind of wish I did because I'd had it from, you know, for so long. But right. I hear you. But it's such an important card in the hobby, even yeah. though it may not be your favorite aesthetically. I think yeah. it's still worth uh, worth owning, and so I, I agree with I agree with Skeppy's comment. And uh, Chris says people like that aren't true collectors, but I don't think that holds true consistently. I think that there are there are exceptions as we've been discussing, but some people just you know don't buy cards because they love them. They buy them to invest in them, and they don't care what they look like, and they don't care who's on them. They just want to know what it's worth and what they can flip it for. And they're pure flippers, not pure collectors. And hey, the hobby has a place for them as well. What does Dave says? Over time, most cards come back around. I, I I think I agree. I just don't really know, Dave, what uh, what you're really getting at there. But if you wanna if you wanna expand, I'd love to love to round, hear your rounded out thoughts on that. Willie says, when you pay over comps, doesn't that new purchase price become the new comp? So it drives the market unless it's a shill and you don't really want the card. Listen, I mean, that's why comps are only a part of the picture when you're deciding to buy a card. I feel um, you you have to take comps with a grain of salt, not because they're not real, although some aren't, but because you could have a you could have a card sell for way more than it's ever sold for before, and that's just because two people put in these astro bids and uh, and they they drove up the price. 
So is that the new comp or is that the, just a real temporary one? The next time it sells, it's going to sell for a lot less because the third bidder is way lower. You could have two guys bidding a thousand, one, the third guy bidding 350. So the thousand guys, the thousand guys duke it out. One guy buys it for a thousand. The other guy doesn't get it. Next time the card comes around, the guy who bid a thousand is going to bid a thousand. The next guy is going to bid 350. And the guy who bid a thousand is going to win it for 355. So that thousand dollar comp is really a temporary thing. And if the hobby is going to rely on it as the, as, as like the gospel value of that card, then that's the, the less savvy component of the hobby, I would say, or just, yeah, agreed. One, one sale doesn't definitively make a new market for a card, right? I mean, it's, it's bigger than that. And, you know, and, and with a lot of cards and unless they sell, they're super rare and sell really infrequently. I think, you know, a, a better way to approach it than just the last sale. And, you know, on the vintage side, it, it's particularly important is, you know, to look at the last four or five or six, you know, take a group of sales and and try to figure out what's going on with them. And I say it's particularly important on the vintage side because eye appeal impacts the price so much that, you know, you kind of need to get a sense for where the market is for that card in that grade. And the only way to do it is to look at a number of sales over some period of time. You can't, you can't really deduce enough just from looking at one. Exactly. Well said there. Now for rare cards, like really rare, you might not ever get that group. And then it just comes down to waiting next time and bid that really at the end of the day, all you can do is, is control what you can control. And that is bid what you are comfortable paying and that's it. You're never going to know for sure if you've been, you know, uh, really egregiously shilled or if that, you know, I often see people analyze bid histories and they'll show all these bids that are like $99.99. Well, that's a shill. But then I think I bid that all the time. That's how I bid. I bid, I always bid like 22, 22, 33, 33. Sometimes I'll bid 99.99 or 999.99. Because I'm willing to pay less than 100, so I'll bid a penny less. And if I get it, I get it. If someone's going to bid 100, they can have the card. Right. That's just, that's just how I do it. So I, I wonder if any of my bids that are that look shilly to somebody have been interpreted as shill bids. Because I, I know for certain that not all bids that come in at that at that value are shill bids. Because I am I want those cards and I'm willing to pay for them. Right. Yeah. I, I think looking at the bidder's feedback is even a lot more indicative than their price. Right. So if you're bidding that number and I'm guessing you have a, a pretty strong eBay track record and, and feedback number, hopefully people recognize that's a legit bid coming from someone with that profile. Exactly. It's, it's the it's the ones, you know, and I don't know, it's it's just it's frustrating to me that eBay, with all their resources, can't figure out a way to do something to mitigate the show bidding thing. And I mean, the thing that just seems so obvious to me is just, you know, require beyond a certain price, require 10 feedback score. Like that's it. You don't need to have a hundred, but you just have people creating brand new accounts and bidding all the time. And, you know, all just about all of them are zero and one feedback. I mean, that, that seems like it would eliminate such a substantial portion. And that's just, I mean, they have, to have a lot of people thinking about this in a lot of different areas of their business. I, I just wish they could do something about it. As I feel like it's a lot better at the other auction houses is, you know, is, is certainly my sense that, you know, when you have pre-qualified bidders, um, typically bidding on, on bigger cards, you know, you've got obviously a much smaller bidder group than you have on a, a platform like eBay. I feel like 
you know, my sense is it's policed a lot better. The the pay the percentage of unpaid cards is much, much lower on, you know, whatever, a PWCC, a golden, Robert, you know, Robert Edward, whatever it is. Um, you know, and I've I've heard Ken Golden talk about it before, and I think he said which I assume he's you know being honest about it, but 98 or 99 percent of all cards on his site get paid for it, you know. I mean, and, and yeah. on eBay, I think we know it's a, a number way less than that, yeah, yeah. I, I think you're probably right. Uh, just thinking about my own experience. So, uh, Chris C says it's hard to determine at times what to pay when there are no comps, say a low pop card that hasn't sold in years, it, yeah. But it's funny, it's hard to determine what to pay for that card, but that's really. I think that's a unique situation. It's a fun situation. And that's when you just have to decide, you know, you can find, if you need a comp, you can sort of look at a similar player, you know, you, you can yeah. find other ways to, yeah. to get comfortable with a value. But at the end of the day, you just have to, you just have to bid what you're comfortable bidding is kind of, kind of where, where my mind goes, goes with that. Skeppy says just buy cards without comps problem solved. I actually really like that strategy. Uh, Dave says we're seeing the limitations of comps now with hundreds of cards being available and dealers saying, hey, one sold over the last three months for X, Y, Z. Yeah. Yep. Justin Vick says comps are data points. You need to fill in the dots with context, baby. Oh, yeah, that's exactly it. Exactly. Right. You need to fill it in elsewhere. Um, okay. Thanks for those comments, guys. Uh, welcome to the show, Sean, Victory Investments. If you don't know, Sean, the guy behind this uh, this name here is one who wrote and produced, performed the song that opens up Sports Cards Live. Great to see you, Sean. Says Jeremy, that, uh, Sean, Sean is a buddy of mine as well. I, I joke with him that he's the the Jamie Foxx of sports cards because he, like Jamie Foxx, he can do it all, right? Like he's, he knows about everything. He's been in the hobby forever. He does hobby music, videos, comedy. I mean, he's, he's, uh, he's a pretty impressive hobby guy and makes it a lot more fun for sure. He's awesome. He is. Well, follow him on Instagram at Victory Investments. Uh, some of the the best, really the best uh, Instagram content out there with the videos he puts together. And he's yeah. a performer. Uh, it, it's great. Uh, thank you, Sean. Uh, Tim Larson, watch your show all the time. First time live. That's awesome, Tim. Welcome to the show live. Justin Vick uh, agrees with Nathan. Magic and Bird get a tiny little panel for their rookie card, but it does make their second year cards that much more enticing to compliment the rookie or ju to just have as the only card at all. Uh, Jeff McMahon, hello to you. Welcome to the show. I see some talk here about Steph Curry. Lee says the tops Steph Curry is not that great a looking card, but I have to have it. That's a good call out right there. That is. Yeah, that's a good example. I like that. Yeah. It is another card that's grown on me. He just like, he just looks so young and 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 excited like he's got a smile i don't i don't yeah. dislike it it'd be better if there because there was i don't think it was licensed so you don't get the logos in that but right i i hear you. that's that's a great call out there um lee thanks for that and uh sean says nathan is 100 right the autos on the bird magic dr j enhanced that card a very important card not the most attractive compared to other iconic cards yes and James says, I'm a Larry Bird fan, and I cut the Bird Magic rookie because I couldn't stand Magic being a Celtics <laughs> fan. I'm still not mad. He's still, that's great. That's great awesome. for sure. Dave, I think you're expanding on your comment earlier. Well, is only one sold and hundreds are for sale? If only one sold and hundreds are for sale, then the market price is actually much less. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense 
to me for sure. Sean says, Jeremy just said, if my bids look shilly, going to start using that shilly phrase for faux shill. <laughs> nice. Very nice. Very nice. Justin Vick, in reference to the opening song, Sports Guards of the Lifestyle is stuck in my head. Good stuff. It's funny because I still don't even know the words to the song exactly because he sings he sings it so fast. I, I think I know them, but there might be a couple. I'm like, what, what, what's the lyric there? I should know. It's my own opening song. Uh, Chris C said, still would love to know if anyone ever came across an unopened 52 tops box. Yeah, that would be priceless. Have you ever heard of, of that happening, Nate? No, I haven't. You know, I saw that there was a video on Instagram recently of someone actually opening a graded 52 tops pack. And that was the first time I had seen one of those opened. It was, uh, it was a pretty unfortunate pull from in terms of what came out of there. Not, nothing, um, you know, too, too good, but it was, it was really interesting to see one, you know, actually opened and, you know, the cards obviously look great coming out of there. So that, that was pretty cool, but no, I haven't seen a box before. No, neither have I. That would be, you know, you talk about the 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 86 Fleer basketball, the a case of 86 Fleer basketball is like it's like put up on a pedestal, they shine lights on it. It's a it's an ugly box. But what's inside is, you know, however many 75 Jordan rookies, which is crazy to think that 75, I'm thinking 24 boxes times three a box, something like that. Mm -hmm. I might yeah. be wrong on both those numbers. I think it's two to three a box, but I don't know how many boxes in a case. In any event. You know, I would way rather have a 52 tops baseball box than than a case of 86 Fleer. It's just such a older, amazing artifact. Grotman says that Alexi Lafreniere Young Guns is one of the ugliest modern rookie cards in recent memory. Yeah, as far as Young Guns go of like first overall picks, it, it pretty much is. They couldn't get a proper picture of him because of the pandemic. Um, but lucky for the hobby, unless you bought those in pre-sale or right at release for about $400, that card's now worth like, I don't know, well under a hundred bucks. And it's, so it's not all that nice. And at this point in time, it's not all that important, but that may change. He still has a lot of potential. They bulletin, not a 52 box, but in about 1985, I opened a box of 55 tops. Wow. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And the logo man is close. 2 million plus BP. Is that where, what, what you're still seeing, Nate? Yeah. Wow. It's, uh, it's ticking down right now. Let me see if another bid came in. Uh, so right now, Nate's looking at golden auctions at the lo the triple logo man to see what, what, uh, what the value, what the price is at this point in time. It's yeah. It looks like it closed. It says bidding is closed. Sale will be finalized in the next 30 seconds and it's still at 2 million. So 2.4 million with buyer's premium. So if that sold, I mean, that's, that's definitely under most estimates that that I've heard most guesses. Well, let's let's take all those estimates with a grain of salt and yeah. uh, consider if this thing sells for any more than what it's already at. I think uh, you know we were talking earlier about saving money when you bid a thousand and buy for four hundred. I think anyone who's gonna who's gonna spend over two point four million is on the other side of that at this point. But hey, yeah. what do I know? I don't play it. I don't I don't play at those levels. Yeah. Grotman clear, clarifies an average case of 86 Fleer has 40 MJ rookies. My dad busted a few in 89, 12 boxes for case. Thank you for clarifying Grotman. Chris C's oldest box is 80 tops. Very cool. Bulletin didn't keep that box. Yeah, but who would have thought of keeping it back in 85, Dave, right? I mean, unfortunately it didn't, but who would have thought about it anyway? So that's pretty cool. 
Chris C says, Logo Man, way overpriced, but that's just my take. Well, it's mine too. It's not just your take. I think, Chris, I think there's a lot of people that are that, that have that same take as you. Let's ask you, Nate. What do you think? And it's so hard to answer this, but take a stab just for just for the fun of the discussion. You know, if you had a if you had half a billion in the bank, what would you be willing to spend on this card? Uh yeah, I'm with Chris C. Uh, it's not it's not a card that's for me. It's I would not win the auction. Whatever. I don't know what I'd be willing to spend, but I mean, I don't know. It's it you know, I I don't want to put the card down to whoever bought it by saying what I would buy, you know, would buy it for, but it's it's nowhere near the ballpark even if I had half a billion. I I would be there's a lot of stuff way way higher on my my want list than that card. Yeah. 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 Same here. I mean, it's a, it's it's cool, and it's cool because it's now going to be. It will be a legendary piece simply because of when it came about within the the history of the hobby. The fact that Ken Golden promoted the crap out of it, the yeah. whole the whole Times Square pictures and all that, the whole the the Drake right, the, the Drake layer as well. You know, yeah. it will never be forgotten. But yeah. yeah, it's definitely not for me either. The fact that it sells for more than his rookie, I think, is a little off although the rookie the rookie is not game used these are apparently game used so there's that uh, that nuance as well what's up i collect ichiro um who i saw by the way shout out to i collect ichiro who was very generous uh today during the bench clear media's hobby palooza uh they were for every five dollars of super chat that was donated you got an entry into winning a prize from panini and then uh a chunk of that money after after YouTube takes their their cut was going to go to uh, signatures for soldiers, so a really great event uh, today and tomorrow on the Bench Clear Media YouTube channel. And Ichiro, I saw you donate like twenty bucks during every show today, so good on you and thanks for tuning in to, to my piece there. Skeppy says, Nate, what is rare to you? What metrics and experience do you use to determine rarity? I love this question. It has it can go in so many directions, so take it in whatever direction you want, Nate. Sure. Yeah, um, it's it's actually a concept that uh, that I focus on. I think less than than most people do. I I tend to focus my collection a little more on. I, I really like historically significant iconic cards, and you know, and and that's mostly you know on the vintage side where I collect um, and you know, to, to get those types of cards that also have real rarity and, and scarcity on the vintage side, you know, I mean, if you talk about, I don't know, a Babe Ruth rookie card or, you know, something like that, it's, you're talking just astron- astronomical pricing. So, you know, I, I'd say, you know, I, I don't really collect a lot of numbered stuff. I don't collect a lot of ultra modern stuff. Um, you know, certainly not one of ones or out of tens or anything like that. So, you know, with, within the vintage context and, you know, the stuff that I collect, um, I look at a card's overall pop report and and it does matter to me, certainly. You know, I mean, you look at, um, like, take the 52 tops mantle. I, I think the, you know, the overall pop on that is, I believe, around 18 or 1900 PSA population. Um you know, and that you can use that as kind of, you know, an interesting benchmark. Um, the Jackie, the 52 tops Jackie is less. I think it's um, more like 1300 or so, you know, it's a pretty significant amount less than the mantle. 
Um, and so, you know, I looking at the demand for those cards, I consider those, you know, rare or, or scarce, you know, com compared to how in demand they are. Um, and then, you know, you look at, I collect mostly, you know, on the baseball side, at least up through around 1958. And when you get into, um, 55, 56, 57, you know, the populations really start rising on some of those cards. You know, you look at the, some of the mantles and they'll be in the 7,000, 8,000 range in terms of overall PSA pop. Um, and so, you know, that, that's certainly a, a factor for me in thinking about, you know, do I want, how much do I want to, you know, invest in, in that card? And, you know, if it's a card I want, but the pop is really high, I, I might, you know, get a little lower grade um, because I, you know, feel like there is just, you know, so many of them out there. Maybe it's a, a little, you know, less interesting from, from an investment standpoint. I mean, my primary consideration with all of it certainly is collecting, but um, so, you know, I, I certainly factor it in, but far more important for me, you know, I, I tend to collect high demand cards, you know, cards that are well-known, cards that are beautiful, um, cards that are significant within the hobby. And then I look at scarcity kind of secondarily, which I think is different from a lot of people. I, you know, I hear people talk about scarcity as kind of sort of the real primary motivating factor, I feel like, in a lot of card buying decisions. And, you know, maybe it's because I'm primarily a collector more than an investor. You know, me, if I had, you know, more of a, you know, primary investor mindset, maybe scarcity would be the primary consideration. But so I don't know. Th those are kind of some of my thoughts about it. But I, you know, I, overall, I look more kind of demand driven than supply side driven, I think, than a lot of collectors. Yeah, no, thanks for that. Thanks for that response. And it's just such a natural response. And thanks, Skeppy, for, for the great question, for sure. A uh, couple of comments about the, the LeBron. Hockey Cards Up says, I would prefer a single logo man with a nice picture of him on it. I don't want all logo man ruins the card. Yeah, you know, aesthetically, it's not the most pleasing card. We talked about this earlier about, you know, cards that don't look nice, right. but people buy anyway. This might be one of those cards. Three baby LeBrons. Yeah, exactly. Right? Three <laughs> right. baby LeBrons. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Justin Vick says, I wouldn't spend 500 for that triple logo. Man. Well, you would if you knew you could get $2 million for it, but I know I get what you're saying, Justin. And Chris C says, I could buy sealed vintage wax and mantle maze, et cetera, for cheaper than logo man. That's really the thing. Like, if you put it in that context, like what you could do with that money in the hobby, never mind outside the hobby, in the hobby instead of that card. But there are, there's going to be a segment of people that just think that that card legitimately feel that that card is the card of, of the 2000s, maybe, you know, that it, it's possible. Yeah. And, and it's, I don't, I'm not comfortable saying that they're wrong if that's how they feel. It's just, it's not my yeah. outlook but I don't want to criticize them for thinking that if they do. So absolutely. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Justin says triple logo man, great in theory, but execution kind of lacking. Yeah, I've heard that comment several times. Brad says 52 tops. Matthews, the Eddie Matthews is way rarer than the mantle. It's on my someday list. Isn't that like the number one card in the set or the last card in the set, the Eddie Matthews. I feel like that's why it's super rare. I could be way off on yeah, that. I think though. it's at the end of the set. Yeah. I don't know if it's the very last card, but right around there. Yep. Yeah. yeah. Lee Haskins says, I love 50s and 60s baseball cards, but at a show in Chantilly today, they are not rare. I saw them everywhere, but the Hall of Famers are very important to my collection. The rarity comes in higher grades. And yeah, back to Skeppy's comment and what you were saying, Nate, about rarity. 
I'll just chime in briefly and say that, you know, there's two different ways to look at rarity. One is, is the cards, do we know the print run of the card, you know, manufactured scarcity versus the population of the card in, in manual grading companies, population reports, you know, like how many nines, eight, sevens, that kind of thing. I do like looking at population percentile when it comes to older important cards and understand that is this the top one percent of the graded population if it is that's a pretty special percentile to be in you know and then you get to scarcity you know the rarity and scarcity are not the same things that we talk about it so much i had to look them up uh, about a month ago just to make sure i understood the difference and rarity is like the the absolute amount of cards that exist is it one, two, three, four, five, or is it 25,000? You know, one, two, three, four, five is rare, 25,000 is. And then scarcity refers to does the demand outweigh the supply? So you could have a very, a card that isn't rare, but is very scarce. There could be 10,000 right. copies, but a million people want them. That's a scarce card. You could have yeah. a one of one that nobody cares about, printing plates for the most part. And they're not scarce at all because they'll sit on eBay or wherever for months on end. So absolutely. Yeah. And then, you know, and then you have the you have the number that are out, number of cards that are out there. And then also, you know, there are some cards that sell frequently and some that people, you know, when they get their hands on them, really tend to hold on to and, and don't make them available. And so there, there are a lot of different, you know, factors that go into it. one that that really comes to mind for me in, in that regard is the the 1941 play ball Joe DiMaggio. Are you familiar with that card with the purple background? Yeah. And that's one where I think the PSA pop is maybe around 700 or so. You know, it's, it's fairly low, but but not tiny. But they're, they're exceedingly difficult to find. At the National last year, that was like the top card on my list. And I think I saw, and you know, I mean, at the National, there's everything and there's a hundred of everything. I think I found two of them at the entire National. And I, I checked every booth there. <laughs> so there was a, I think I found an eight o a PSA 8OC and a raw with some paper loss. And, and that was it at the whole show, you know, I mean, it's like people, and, and I have found that over and over and there are cards like that. I mean, that's just one example, but there are a lot of them out there where the pop, the pop is one thing, but how often do they sell? And when people get them, do they tuck them away? Yeah. It, well said, you know, you know, it's funny. One was a PSA one, I think you said with paper loss. And the other was a PSA 80C. And, you know, as a collector for you, how, what's your position on, Vintage cards and PSA slabs that have the OC or the MC for miscut qualifier uh, versus, say, a you know, say a PSA 8 OC versus a nicely centered PSA 5 of the same card, which might be the same price. Where, yeah. Which way would which way do you? What are your thoughts on which way do you lean? And what are your thoughts basically on qualifier cards? Right. Uh, you know, I I generally have not really collected qualified cards. I, I have a few of them, but with um, you know, with eye appeal being such a big factor in what I collect, I, I really enjoy the hunt for kind of lower grade, high eye appeal cards. So with a lot of the stuff that I go after, um, you know, I, I would love to find a two or a three that I feel like looks better than most fours and fives. And what I look at primarily is, you know, certainly I'd say, you know, the two main factors are centering obviously and so you know that eliminates a lot of the oc and mc cards um and then the surface and you know within that context the color you know how how vivid is the color and how clean is the surface and if it's 
you know, I can live with edgeware, I can live with cornerware, I can live with, you know, a little whatever it is on the back, you know, some whatever. Um, so, you know, I and if all that ends up yielding a, a vividly colored, well-registered, well-centered PSA three with some um, some genuine cornerware because it was handled by a kid eighty years ago. I love that card. That that's that's what I want to find. And and they're hard to find. You know, I mean, people. That's the other thing. You look at the pop report, and I'll give another example: the Clemente rookie. Um, you know, it's it's a fairly high pop report. I don't know, five or six thousand. I want to say something like that total PSA pop. But how many of those are in a grade that? a lot of people would consider affordable and that have high eye appeal. I'll tell you, it's a tremendously difficult card to find centered. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's a lot of surface and print issues with it. And so, you know, you kind of dwindle that pop down, it, you know, as, as a vintage collector to what is really a fairly small subset of any population in terms of the number of those cards that I would be interested in, in collecting. And, you know, I tend to interact with a lot of people on, you know, some of my buddies on Instagram, especially that collect the same way I do. It sounds like you collect it, you know, in that way to, to a large degree. Um, and so, you know, you end up having a fair number of us that collect that way that chase those cards. And so, you know, there's a lot of demand for them and, and the, you know, the actual supply, you know, the Clemente, if there's 5,000 of them, maybe there's a thousand of them that are well-centered. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I'm with you. And, you know, with the way the hobby's gone in the last few years, just in terms of prices and the, the, you know, as prices have gone up and there's, you know, even though we're right now in June of 2022, we're, we're having a bit of a, well, we're having whatever we're having. We're down, we're down, let's say, but we're still up from where we were in the early 2010s when I was buying in late 2000, well, through the 2000s up until say 2017. I mean, I was buying hall of fame rookies all the way through. And now a lot of the ones that I didn't acquire are just too expensive in the grade that I would have liked to have them. And the, my best example, I refer to it all the time, 51 Bowman Willie Mays. I've been looking mm-hmm. for that card for the appropriate copy since like 2007 or eight. Yeah. Almost had a six one day from, I think, uh, I forget who it was, maybe Greg Morris on eBay or something like that. Mm-hmm. Beautiful six, went higher than I wanted to pay. I didn't buy and I still don't have one now. It's like four times the price. What I'm getting at is that with since that's happened, where my mind goes now as a collector of and wanting to represent these players in my collection, especially the rookie card, is give me a PSA one with a pinhole or a staple or two staple holes in it yeah. all day long. I want cards with pinholes because to me it's such a minor thing. It's it's it, it's it's limited to such a small part of the card. It's not a crease running through it or paper loss or rounded corners. But by the way. I like slightly rounded corners like PSA fours and fives of some nice vintage cards. Like to me, that just, that's a card that was well loved. I almost high grade vintage to me. Listen for the value, the investment potential, great stuff. But for the, just the overall nostalgia, the one thing we don't know about any card that we own that's from before we were born is the journey it took, unless it came from your own family, right? You just don't know where these cards were like a card from the night. You talked about the 41 DiMaggio. What is the journey that that took that card took from being pulled out of a pack wherever that was through till June 2022? We'll never know, but it's fun to think about. Love it. Couple yeah. comments. Uh, Albert Jones, good evening to you. Says the triple logoman booklet would a triple logoman booklet would have been better. 
Jake Dahl says, Pafco is card one. Matthews is the last card. So I guess I was right about that. My memory served me well there. Thank you for confirming that, Jacob. And uh, Jerry says, shouldn't the card have been a quadruple logo man since he played in Cleveland twice? <laughs> Every time you add a logo man to a card, you take out a case hit though. You, re- you And I know he's tongue in cheek here, Jerry. I know you're tongue in cheek, but you do. You take away the ability of, for Panini to make more product, which means less revenue. So maybe they maxed at three and maybe, maybe the guy who invented the card or conceived of it wanted to put a fourth one on, but finance, finance at Panini told them, nah, save that for another card so we can have more cases. Skeppy wants to know, Dave, back to, uh, sorry, Nate, back to 48 Leaf, your thoughts on the John Wagner. And before you get to it, if you notice, I was looking at my phone. If you, I was pulling up the card just to make sure I knew what it was. So I'm going to put it up for people to see. That's the, and this is Honus Wagner. Right. This is the, the John Honus Wagner card, 48 Leaf. Your thoughts on this card, Nate? You know, I like it. I, I don't own it, but I would like to. It's the one where, right, there's there's a little bit of a, um, you know, kind of a, a story with that because he's chewing tobacco, right? And Famously in his T206 card, you know, one of the stories is that that card was pulled because he was anti-promotion of tobacco to children and so didn't want to have his likeness used for that. And then he's shown here, what, I guess, 40 40 years later as a manager with a big cheek full of chaw. So I, I don't know, you know, and I've, I've heard different stories on why his, his T206 card was pulled and as scarce as it is. One of them is that it was for that reason. You know, I've, I've heard that he actually wasn't anti-tobacco. He was anti-cigarettes Spe- specifically. They were, that was kind of looked down on at the time, but smoking a pipe or chewing tobacco was fine. So I don't know where the truth lies there, but I do think that 48 Leaf Wagner is pretty cool because of that tie-in and some of the questions it conjures about that. Yeah, yeah, fair. So when I first looked at it, and I've seen the card before, and I like it for all those reasons that you're talking about, you know, that he's he looks he looks old there and he's chewing tobacco. But overall, I, like, he doesn't look like a baseball player here, and he shouldn't. He's not a player at the time, so I get it, but... I, it's not a card that I would pursue at all for my collection. Um, I do have Honus Wagner represented in my personal collection. Of course, I don't have the T206 card, but I'll show you. The, I did I did pick up this card uh, several years ago. Well, not several, maybe in like 2014 or 15, something like that. But I picked up this one. I don't know if you're familiar with this card, Nate. A little bit. That? Yeah, yeah. Seen it, certainly. Yeah. 1910 E90-2 American Caramel Pittsburgh Pirates uh, Honus. And I love nice. it because the, it doesn't look great here, but the blue is so vibrant. It's actually, I think, a yeah. nicer card than the T206. Yeah, it's beautiful. And I got it for you know, not like a, literally a hair of a fraction of a price of the T206. It's still worth some money, but um, not that card. So so for that reason, you know, and this to me is, that that represents Honus in my collection way more than I need that 48 leaf, but th- right. some questions, Skeppy, you got some fun ones tonight. Thanks for that one. Dave Bolton says I collect Wagner, but I don't like the 48 leaf card. Yeah. That, that makes complete counter. I feel the same way. I don't collect them except for one card, but I hear you. Uh, Chris C said, I have the 55 Kofax eight OC just because the price four years ago was low on it. Wish I would have bought a six in retrospect. 
I understand that. I, I'm the same way. I'd rather not. I'd rather have a centered six than an an, an eight OC. I think you're you're pretty much the same, hey Nate? Yeah. 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 Well, I would generally. Yeah. Eight OC is. I mean, eight OC is a great card, though. I mean, I'm sure that thing is absolutely beautiful. So, I I'd, I'd be very happy with either. I you know I I tend to go more for centered stuff, but seeing a a 55 Kofax in an eight any kind of eight is I'm sure a sight to behold. So that's that's for a great sure. card. That's yeah. why I love it. I love it myself. I went through a phase, well, not a phase, but several years where I'd go to the national and I would make sure that I bought one hall of fame baseball rookie each time. And usually I was going to Brady Hill or Jeff from card country to buy it. Cause I just knew they had great cards. And one year was the 55 Kofax uh, rookie that I bought off of one of those guys. I forget mm -hmm. which one, but great, great card. Yeah. Uh, good evening to you, Jeremy M. Welcome to the show. Chad Shipper, same to you. And thanks for joining on uh, Hobby Palooza earlier. And your super chat was noted and much appreciated. Uh, Chris C says, great point about the journey of a card. It's, yeah, right, Chris. I mean, it's something we don't think about. Nate, have you ever thought about that yeah, when it comes often. to your vintage cards? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's it's one of the things that really draws me to, to collecting vintage cards. I mean, it's you know, purely imaginative, but you know, the, the, his, it's, it's part of the history element of the card, you know, the card itself represents a period in time. It represents a player, a team, what was happening with, with them at that time, what was happening in our country at that time. So that's an element of the historical piece, but then the other part that you're talking about, that's, that's really cool. And is, you know, really fun to think, you know, one of the ones, one of the sets that I love thinking about in, in that respect is the, um, the Cracker Jack sets and especially 1914 Cracker Jack, where they were all, you know, box pulled, um, from, from Cracker Jack boxes. And so, you know, you've got a set that's over a hundred years old and you think about, um, you know, a, a kid and his parents or dad going to a game, you know, in 1914, opening up a box of Cracker Jack and pulling one of those cards out. And, you know, it's got the the um, sugar stains and the oil stains from from the box on it. And, you know, what do you do? Slide it in his back pocket and continue. You know, I mean, it's so that that was the process of that card being obtained. And then what else has been its journey? You know, did, did he right. keep it? Did he pass it down to his kid who passed it down to his kid? And then they sold, you know, I mean, it's just, so I, I, I love thinking about that stuff. The historic, you know, the art piece and the aesthetics is a huge part of it. And then the history is, is a huge part of it for me as well. It lets your imagination run wild, which is fun. And one thing you didn't mention, you know, you said passed down from father to son potentially, but also kids were trading back in the day. Like, like, yeah was this card on the on the schoolyard concrete ground outside as kids were looking at them was it who was it who was it traded for what was it traded for how many how many owners has it had what what states countries has it been in like to me that's a lot of fun to think about even though we'll never know right okay i'm gonna bring up lee haskins question here and he, he ends it with a question to you he says i have a wilt chamberlain rookie it's a psa 8 oc very congrats lee he says PSA eight is a very low pop. I love the card; it's great because many of them, many of them are off center. Nathan, did I make a mistake buying the eight OC? Um, I mean, I I love that card. You know, the the Wilt rookie overall. It's 
and you know, and it's maybe a time to talk a little bit about you know, and on the vintage side, I, I really primarily collect baseball and basketball, um, and have spent spent a lot of time, and and really kind of got when I came back into the hobby a few years ago, basketball was really the thing that pulled me back in, and then you know, I, I did that primarily for a while, and then um, started crossing back over and and collecting more baseball stuff again, which is which had been the primary focus of. Um, my early collecting years. So I have a, a tremendous amount of love for, for basketball cards, both vintage and modern, but, but particularly vintage and the Wilt and the Bill Russell are, you know, and, and the Mike and kind of make up the big three vintage cards and the Wilt. Um, I mean, I, I think it's just a, a phenomenal card. And, and one of the things that's really interesting is looking at the relative um, populations, you know, we've talked some about scarcity and, and, and rarity and, and pop reports and stuff. And uh, you know, the, the numbers of those key basketball cards are, are a fraction of the numbers of the key baseball cards. And, you know, and I've thought with, with the extreme focus, you know, and, and moving the hobby toward basketball collecting, it's, it feels continues to feel kind of inevitable to me that a lot of those people that are collecting the more modern basketball stuff will at some point, you know, start to move more into collecting some of the historical basketball goats and, you know, Russell and, and Chamberlain, I think are at the top of that list. I think that the Chamberlain overall PSA pop is about 1800 and the Bill Russell, which is the 57 tops card is about a thousand. And when you look at the historical significance of those players, the significance of those cards within the, you know, basketball collecting, I, I you know, I, I love them from an investment standpoint. I, I love them first and foremost as a collector and, and, you know, they're, they're integral parts of, of my collection. And, and I, you know, certainly not want to part with those. So overall um, I, I love the card and I would think there would continue to be a movement toward people collecting it. Um, 80C versus say hypothetically a six. I mean, I don't know, like, you know, like I say, I think there has been a movement toward collecting more centered stuff, you know, more high eye appeal stuff. And within that, a lot of people look at centering. So, you know, maybe on the margins, a six would have been a little better than an 80C, but who knows the eight, you know, again, you look at an eight and there are people that are going to want that because that's a beautiful pack fresh card from 1961. And so you never know, you know, when the pendulum might shift back to, Hey, I want pack fresh instead of centered. Yeah. Well, well said. And, you know, my, my opinion is, is the same here as Chris C who says not a mistake. Lee Dave Bolaton says, if you love the card, it's not a mistake. I mean, I have to completely agree with both, both Chris and Dave there. I mean, you love the card. The other thing is that I think, and I think, uh, I think Lee kind of made the comment that uh, many of them are off-centered. So you're you're just kind of getting a, a a card that fits right into the overall production run, and yeah. when therefore when a centered copy shows up, it's going to sell for a premium relative to other cards in the grade because people are are now savvy to that eye appeal. The other thing about the Wilt rookie that I look for is one with really good registration because. I always look, if you think of the if, about the Wilt rookie, under what would be his left armpit, right in here, you often see a, a gap between his arm and the background, like a little white sliver uh, of where, where no, ink lay, no ink was laid down. Right. Um, I don't, are you looking at a copy of it right yeah, now? Yeah, that's one of the ones I brought here to... 
So Just yours doesn't seem to have it. I'm looking under under on the right side of the card or the right. the right side of the card. I'm looking at his armpit and it seems to not have that. So that's a that to me is a what is that a five? It's a five, yeah. I mean, yeah. from this angle, the centering looks great. Uh, it doesn't, it seems to have like perfect registration. So to yeah. me, you know, I centering is very important, but right there with it is is a good, a well-focused card that with with no red, with very little if to no, no registration issues, and 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 without a lot of fading. You know, you can have a beautiful card from back then, but it's faded so much because right. it was rubbing against other cards, that sort of thing. That's what yeah. surface to me, the surface of the card, the overall, including the centering, so the yeah. presentation of the front of the card outside of edges and corners to me is much more important than edges and corners. Absolutely. Yep. And the other thing to Lee's, to Lee's uh, Wilt Chamberlain here is that like you basically, like I think the standard that we all generally accept is that if, if PSA graded that card and the submitter said, I don't want, I don't want a, a qualifier, they would have given it a six. So you basically have a, a, a six, a very, a six with great corners, edges and surface. You just have poor centering. But again, Centering is important, but it's not like a, I don't know, shouldn't be an absolute deal breaker on cards that are so important and, and uh, expensive. So. And, and so frequently off center, as you've mentioned, and as he mentioned as well, you know, I mean, what, three quarters or 80% of those probably are fairly substantially off center. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, uh, uh, Jeremy makes a comment. The journey of a vintage card is fascinating to me as well, but I find the circumstances for how a vintage card reminds in remains in high grade similarly fascinating. Yeah, that's I I hear that, and I don't know if you're getting at this, Jeremy M, or not. But like, you know, you can you can find some really nice high grade cards where the edges are just too bright too bright and it's like oh how'd that happen and so i would rather have a a card that looks its age versus one that is like i i just don't know i would always look at it and be like oh, i don't know so i don't know if that's right. what you're getting at jeremy but yeah but it's also fascinating to think that some like even in the early 80s when i was collecting sets of opg hockey cards every year and tops baseball even i kept my cards in great condition they weren't uh they were very important to me and I, I love them. I didn't throw them against the wall and put them in the spokes of my bikes. My cards were off limits to that. I cherished them in the early eighties even. How about you? Jeremy? Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's interesting because um, gosh, I felt like I did that and man, they went, they went straight into the binders and you know, I've, I've got ton, tons of binders full of cards from, from when I collected and I, you know, I really collected heavily from kind of age 11 to age 17. Um, so, you know, through middle school and high school. And I would have thought in pulling them back out and, and looking at them, you know, many years later that they'd be virtually perfect. But I mean, they're not bad. But I mean, first of all, like, you know, then we didn't really focus on centering nearly as much. And so, you know, you look at a lot of them and I mean, so like I would have thought, you know, hey, I, I probably a, a pretty decent number of them are nines and tens, but a lot of them aren't. And, you know, there's wear that maybe came out of the pack that way, or I don't know, maybe I handled them a little bit more than I remembered. Certainly centering is is a huge factor now that, that wasn't before, but I took really good care of them, but I still think I probably have a lot more sevens and eights than I do nines and tens. Yeah. A couple things I'll, I'll respond to that with. Um, 
I did, you know, as I mentioned, I kept my cards in good shape. And then in 2000, and I think it was eight, I went to the national and I took all my, all the good car, all like the rookie cards from my collection. And I gave them all to PSA for grade. It was like a 300 card submission and I eight bucks a card. So it wasn't so bad back then. And of course I, I overestimated the grades. Right. So, you know, if I thought it was going to come back a nine, nine or a 10, it was an eight. If I thought it was right. going to be an eight, it was a six. And that happened. That was like consistent. I was rarely surprised or or even like um, satisfied with the grade. But it, I, I got over it pretty quick. It was what it was. And hey, I've had these cards for a long time. It just goes yeah. to show how tough it is to find old, even 80s cards, never mind 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, in yeah. really good condition. So yeah. Uh, Fun topic, Jeremy M. Thanks for that. Got a lot, lots of good. This is a fun episode, Nate. I'm really enjoying this. Uh, lot, good. Lot yeah, you you have a, a super lively uh, group here of question askers. It's making it a lot of fun. Well, and they're on fire tonight with some of the. This is one of the best. Yeah. I would say the chat. You you guys all deserve a ton of kudos for tonight because your your comments and qu- your questions are just great. I mean, Skeppy has one from a few minutes from 10 minutes ago i'll get to it that's another great great topic i, w- I want to get to that so maybe we'll we'll first say hello to to baz baseball card curmudgeon welcome to the show let's go to skeppy's question here nate in what ways do you rediscover cards in your collection how do you forget wh- i love this how do you forget what you have sometimes so speak to that and i, I you see the smile because I deliberately make myself forget about cards. So I, I can speak to it, but let's hear from you, Nate. Yeah. Um, in terms of rediscovery, you know, I mean, I went through a huge period of that, you know, just kind of talking about my my collecting journey a little bit, you know, as I've alluded to, you know, I, I collected um, very heavily as a kid through middle school and high school. I collected with my dad and, you know, with some did some trading with friends and all that. And, you know, and it, it was, it was a, a very big thing for me then. And then I, I took a long time off. I mean, you know, I still would kind of stick a toe in here and there, but, um, really was out of it until, um, kind of just, you know, just shortly before COVID, I, I got all my cards from my parents' house and had them and then COVID hit and I got really into it. So there was a, a huge period of, of complete rediscovery of, of, you know, all the cards that I hadn't, really spent a lot of time with in, in a long time. Um, so that, that was tremendously fun. And then, um, I mean, I guess maybe what I'd say is I, I, I try to sort of look at cards in, in different contexts and, and appreciate them in different ways. And one of the, one of the, and I've been doing a few Instagram posts about this recently, but one of the ways I really try to do that is kind of pairings or groupings of, of different cards allow me some rediscovery of how does it fit within my collection? Are there some other cards where, you know, there's a, there's a real strong linkage there that I hadn't really thought about before. Does it help connect certain sub collections or subsets that I have? And so, you know, I think in terms of discovery, it's a constant process of discovery with a card in terms of, you know, just it's fit within what you're trying to do. It's fit within certain other cards. It's historical fit within the hobby. Um, kind of how I'd come at that question. How, how about you? Yeah, I, I like your angle. Mine, you know, what I do, and 
I it's I haven't been able to do as do it as much lately because I've just lately been spending more time looking at my my collection. So right now I'm familiar with a lot of my cards, if if not all of them. But what I what I've done over the past like 15 years or so is, you know, I keep my box my cards in two row shoe box boxes, and I will. I will put them away and I will just not look, I will deliberately not look at one of those boxes for as long as I can go so that when I look at it, they're kind of new again. You know, that's the, that's the one we often, you know, there's this whole, there's a sentiment in the hobby, which says you buy cards, you put them in a box, you put the box in the closet, you never look at them again. So what's the point of having them if that, if they're just sitting there and you're, and you're never looking at them? I agree with that sentiment to a, to a degree. We just like to know we own things as collectors a lot of the time too. You know, you can yeah. look at the scans on your phone, which I do all the time. Yeah. But I what I what I've done over the over the past decade and a half or so is literally that, just deliberately not look at a certain box of cards and trying to forget what's in there and then maybe once a year I would open up that box and flip through it and pull out the cards and really appreciate and enjoy them because the more you look at just like songs, right? The more you listen to a song, oftentimes the quicker you get over that song and you're on to the next or whatever, you know, of course there are classics and we all know that, but I find the same thing happens with me and cards. The more I look at it, the less, the less I want to continue to look at it. So I, so I try and space that out. There are exceptions. There are some cards that are displayed behind me there that I just, want to look at every day so i do right but, um, love it but, yeah i mean one one of the things you know i i don't know what you do on this front but you know i there's you know some number of cards that i keep in a, a bank deposit box you know and so i'll go you know many months without visiting there and you know i as i'm getting sometimes i'll even put it off a little bit and you know as i'm getting close getting really excited to to see you know they tend to be some of the my better cards are there and so when i know I'm going to be bringing those home for, for a while, for whatever reason, you know, I get really excited to go through those again, but yeah, I, I love that tactic that you're using. That's great. Yeah. And no, I, uh, and I'm just looking at some comments here. Brad here says new hall of famers. So you find a card you have and now they're hall of famer. Maybe they go from one box to your, your hall of fame box. That's a, if that's what you're talking about there, that makes sense. Brad goes on to say new hall of famers for baseball lead to rediscovery for me. Minoso has a lot of beautiful cards. I didn't appreciate until he made the haul. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Chris C says it's like saying hello to an old friend when you rediscover cards. Yeah, and I don't know if, if you guys are talking about cards you own or cards that you you you've seen. You know what they look like, and then you go. But it doesn't matter either way. I hear what you're saying, and that makes makes a lot of sense. Uh, a lot of sense to me. Um, I, I love that question. They're yeah, really really fun episodes so far, guys. Thank you so much. Um, Staven sports card says it's all about what you prioritize to be honest. So this is a, in reference to something we were talking about, this, this is a 10 minute old comedy it says, I don't expect vintage cards to be packed fresh. So I'd much rather have a centered one in lower grade. And let me just add to, for you and I'm centered and in focus, in focus, because yeah. it's so much nicer. Look at the 48 Leafs. They're often out of focus, right? right? And Which is a registration issue. Yeah, and I'm I'm the same way. I sometimes don't even mention that because it's um, like that's kind of uh, table stakes in a way. You know, like if it's if it's blurry, I'm I, that's even yeah. That's for me. That's even worse than uncentered. You know, I mean, 
for, for me and the way I collect. Because, you know, you talked about the appearance of the surface and that encompasses a lot of things, but maybe chief among them is registration. It is for me, it comes before centering. It, to yeah. me, that is number one is registration. Then then I then I'm I'm surface as well. I don't want cards with scratches on them or creases or scuffs or I have the odd faded card that looks pretty cool, but yeah, that's it. To me, it's all about surface, and then I move on to like centering corners, edges. But again, when it on, on modern cards, I want my corners to be dead perfect. On vintage cards, I like I like a little bit of rounding on my corners. Be because we've agreed so much on on this topic, let me take the opportunity to maybe disagree with one element you just said, and um, in in terms of, or not disagree, but I'm, I'm, I'm gonna I might have to kick part. you off the show if you're going to disagree with me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, I like I'm creases. Kidding. I can live with a little crease. I, I'm all right with a little crease, you know, especially if it's subtle. Look, I don't want to crease right through the player's face that you can see, or, or ideally not even touching the face, but. If it's kind of a subtle crease and the card otherwise looks like a six, but that crease knocks it down to a two or a three and um, decreases the value by two thirds and allows me to buy and collect a lot of other stuff, I, I'm, I'm all right with that one. Listen, I, I don't disagree with that. Um, it, it depends on the card and the, the rest of the card. If the card is perfect, but for a crease, so otherwise it'd be a PSA seven or eight, but now it's a PSA three, two and a half to four, something in there. Yeah. I'm probably going to buy that card. And depending on where the crease is, yeah. If it's through his face, I'm probably not going to even right. consider it. But yep. if it's if it's up in a corner on the back and this the size and all that, depend, I actually think creases get a, they get a worse rap than they deserve. Agreed, yeah. If, if the crease isn't a, a major, major issue. Like you yep. see people looking through their loop with flashlights, I do this too. Looking for not just a, a crease. A crease is a is a is a worse offender than a wrinkle. When right. you're looking for wrinkles, sometimes you can barely even see them. Get, it's just yeah. like I'll take a card with a with a thumbtack or a staple that was in it before. Right. Give me a card with a wrinkle that you can only see if you really try to see it. Right. Yeah. Otherwise, because yeah. you're gonna get it. You're gonna get great value out of that card. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And and if I can get a, a card that, that I love aesthetically and spend a thousand dollars on it instead of four thousand the way i look at that is that's three thousand more to buy other cards you know i mean because there's just so much that i love to collect and you know i mean that's part of it too in terms of not chasing on the vintage side you know eights and nines or usually even sevens like there's just so much stuff i want to have you know and and that's that's a topic too that comes up a lot where I, i'm i'm a little i think a little different than a lot of people i hear a lot of talk about consolidation mm. and trading up and minimize, you know, taking 10 cards and turning it into one. I don't really want to do that. I love my cards. There's so many cards I love. Like I, if anything, the way I collect is almost kind of deconsolidation as a basis. You know, I, I would rather have three beautiful Jackie Robinson cards and, and take an approach where I'm going to get beautiful, three beautiful PSA threes rather than take one of those cards and get a seven and have that occupy my hobby budget for that quarter of the year or whatever, you know, like that. So there's a little bit of like, I, I kind of want, I want to have a lot of stuff and a lot of, you know, not closets full and rooms full, but the More. balance for me isn't always, can I trade out of cards in order to have less and less more valuable cards? I, I love the cards that I have. I don't want to get rid of them. 
I am with you. We, we're a lot alike in a lot of ways when it comes to collecting. I'm so with you. And I, I've noticed over the past couple of years, this, this movement towards consolidation. And, um, and for me, I've always, I've said the same thing where, look, I don't want to trade away 10 of my cards that I cherish for one that I cherish maybe more. I'd rather just save up for that card or find another way to get it. I don't buy cards for my PC that I intend to move. So it's tough for me to want to consolidate that way. Now, yeah. now I have done some consolidating, but let me explain because I'm I totally just contradicted myself. But let me explain. I often buy collections that I don't that aren't for my personal collection. I'll buy someone's collection because I set up at shows and I love the art of the deal. I love buying selling cards, and it's a great way if you can make some profit to buy more cards for yourself. Yeah. So I have consolidated. But I'm not I'm not moving out of my my personal cards. I'm moving out of my inventory, or I'm more aggressively disposing of my inventory, whatever way, card right. show on Com C, on PWCC, however I'm doing it, I'm disposing of cards so that I can then get, but these aren't cards that I even want. And the right. consolidation can be extreme as a thousand cards for one if I'm gonna buy one big card. Yeah. So consolidation. If you only have a PC, yeah, consolidation like you, Nate, not for me. But as right. far as, hey, I'm going to clear out all, a bunch of cards that I don't care about because I didn't care about them when I got them. I only bought them because I wanted inventory for card shows. That's different. So, yeah. I'm, Good distinction. I'm, yeah. Yeah. I'm not, yeah a I'm not a consolidator either. Uh, it just yeah. doesn't make sense to me, but it makes yeah. sense to a lot of people. So, yeah. Okay. We're, 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 this is, this is going by fast. Um, but I love this question that Chris C posted up for you, Nate. He says, what would be your Mount Rushmore of vintage cards? And this can be a mix of all sports. And earlier on, you mentioned the big three in basketball, the Mike and the Russell and the Chamberlain. And I wanted to ask you, who would be your fourth? Is it Dr. J or is it Jerry West or Oscar Robertson? Who's your fourth? Right. You know, you might put Magic Larry Bird on there. I don't think we're going to put Jordan on there. It's too new. Even right. Six. So yeah, I, I'm gonna, I, I want you yeah. to answer Chris's question, but I also want you to fill out your round out your top four basketball vintage. Right. Okay. You, I think your question is a little easier for me than Chris's. Um, so I'll, I'll start there, which I, I'd probably go with the Kareem. Um, okay. A lot of people, yeah, don't like the tall boy, but I, I love that card. That's, that's one, you know, there, there's an element from, from when I collected as a kid there, which is, like that card seemed so unattainable to me and, and just, you know, one of those kind of magical cards, like, wow. But, you know, like I'd see that in, in a shop once in a while and it's like, man, I'm never going to have that, you know, like they, they kind of had that element to me as a kid for, for whatever reason, like just that kind of, you know, mystical out of reach card. Um, so I, I really love the Kareem and I, he's, you know, he's, you know, everyone has their, their top all time list, but you know, I mean, he's just way up there in terms of what he accomplished. And I think that card is so cool as the first um, really substantial set since 1961 when that came. So I, I, it's a really significant card, significant player. I, I like, so that, that would be my four on the basketball side, but um, looking more broadly at all sports, gosh, that's tough. Um, I would probably, I'd probably take the Russell and the Chamberlain from the basketball side. Okay. Um, the the baseball player that I I love collecting more than anyone I think is is Jackie Robinson. Um, really, really in, enjoy collecting his cards. He has a number of great cards and just love you know kind of 
what he represents as a person and as a player. And so um, really connected with with collecting him. And if, you know, it's hard to pick one, like, you know, I, I like the 52 tops, but I probably have to go with the 48 leaf. I, I think that if if I have to pick one Jackie card, it's that one. Um, so that's three. And then um, the fourth would probably be for me, the um, 33 Gaudi swinging Ruth. Um, you know, there were, there were four Gaudi Ruths and from the 33 set. So it's hard even to pick one of those four, but I just, I really love those, those Ruth cards. Um, you know, tremendously popular, tremendously beautiful. That, that set is just phenomenal. You know, if it's right up there, maybe my favorite vintage baseball set. So, um, those would probably be my four, but my big caveat is if you ask me tomorrow, it'll probably be different, you know, <laughs> and you're allowed. You're right. Yeah, good answer. I'm glad you 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 raised the cream to round out the basketball. I, I forgot about that card, even though um, I, I think it's a great card as well. I'm going to take a stab at this too. Yeah, and I'm gonna I'm not gonna be able to limit it to four, Chris C. But I'm gonna start with the 52 tops Mickey Mantle, the 48 Leaf Jackie, the 57 Russell, and the 61 Wilt. So there's four already, and I haven't even touched football or hockey, and I need to touch hockey. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah, and hockey. I'm gonna go with the 51 Parkers. Uh, Gordy Howe. And I'll probably just stop there. You, people mm -hmm. say, what about the 66 Bobby Orr? It's a great card and all, but um, I don't know. I just, I just, uh, maybe I got to put that in there. The Gretzky, of course, but maybe that's not vintage enough. So right. those two and football, I mean, I don't even know if there's a card, the Jim, the Brown, Jim Brown, like I'm not putting Bronco Nagurski in there simply because mm -hmm. I don't know enough about the guy, but Jim right. Brown, I mean, Jim Brown was a card show signing uh, when, you know, back in 2005, I remember him being there. And so, yeah, you know, so it's anyway. a fun question. And and one that, I mean, you could sit a bunch of collectors down for a dinner and discuss that one question, the whole, the entirety of the dinner and have a lot of fun. <laughs> you just said, you said, I'd love to hear Dr. Beckett's uh, answer to that question. What are his top four vintage cards of all time? Not, not just by sport. I'd love to hear uh, yeah. his, his opinion or, or his personal thoughts on that. Dr. Beckett, if you're listening to this right now, which I think you probably are, maybe not right now, but later, uh, let's have let's have that conversation. It's a fun one. Thank you, Chris C., for bringing that up. That, that was a great, uh, a great topic as well. Uh, Grotman says, the way that the hobby recontextualizes cards that are that are or are not in demand every decade makes, makes it especially easy to find gems that were junk when you put them away. Back to revisiting cards you haven't seen a lot. That that does happen. You know, you you can pull out a box from cards that you you busted 10, 5, 10, 15 years ago, and you might have the you likely have a gem in there, something that's uh, you know, kind of made a comeback, if you yeah. will, as he says. And uh, Dave says the best way to rediscover cards is to have your basement full of boxes you bought 20 to 30 years ago that you haven't been able to find for three years yeah that's a good way to do it too for sure i like that one and uh eric perry chimes in I, I like this he says for me it's surface then registration then centering then edges then corners i like it because you're you're removing surface from registration from centering which to me they're all part of the surface but i do look at them differently as well and to me i i would make two changes to this i would juxtapose registration and surface and i would also juxtapose edges and corners to me corners are more 
important than edges, even though I like a rounded corner. Hmm. What about you, Nate? Yeah, I I would also switch registration and surface. Um, I would, I'd probably leave edges in corners as is. I, you know, I just, I, I really don't mind some corner wear and, and on the edges, sometimes I can find it a little distracting, whereas I virtually never do on the corners. So I'd, you know, it's close between those two for me. The, the one other thing I'd consider doing is, is making color um its own but you know you you could fit a few of these on surface right surface is kind of a an overarching category but color is is really critical and it, it, that's certainly more than others um but on cards where color really matters and where there's variation um that's that's huge for me one one that comes to mind there in the 48 leaf set is the dimaggio like there's mm-hmm. i feel like that green background can vary so much you know some of them it's kind of like a, a, a really pretty vibrant green and in some of them it's kind of like a pea soup split pea soup brownish green that's like really ugly so like you know getting that right color on that one i feel like is huge and then on some cards you know like you look at some of the gouty roots or whatever you can have a lot of fading and so it's really you know like the yellow ruth for example or the the red you know with that solid background if if that's really faded and that that vivid color isn't there that that's huge for me as well yeah Agree. Agree. Uh, you know, agree. We have our, we have our nuanced differences, you and me, but that's okay. That's what keeps it interesting. and makes these discussions interesting. Jake Dahl says no C55 Vezina in the Mount Rushmore. I think it's in the Mount Rushmore. It is on the Mount Rushmore of hockey, Jacob. Um, but for me, and I own one and I love it, but you know, it's, it's a great card for a comprehensive hall of fame collection. It's very important to have. I, I feel um, but yeah, I, I don't know that it would make my top four vintage cards of all time, uh, for sure. It, for sure, it wouldn't for me. Hmm. Um, thank, thank you here to Skeppy. He's out. Thanks for joining. Great contributions from him tonight. Lee Haskins says, great show. Love your live shows and very interactive with questions. Very unique show. Thank you, Lee. You've been around for a while, Lee, so I appreciate the comments. Same from you, Chris. Thank you very much. Uh, there are okay. I got to ask you guys in the chat. Can you just not make any more comments? Because we're going to wrap up in about ten minutes, and I want to get to some above still. So if you can just stop with the awesome comments, that would be appreciated today. <laughs> I've never had to ask that before, Nate. But look what you're bringing out from the uh, from the audience tonight. Okay, James says I've always struggled with quantity over quality. To which Staven says quality quantity is my new favorite phrase in the hobby collectors want as many quality examples of as many different cards our budget can afford us like that is perfectly said that is really well said i love it right because you you know you know nate people people always have said buy the best you can afford well but then i have no money left for anything else exactly this is this takes that which i think makes sense buy the best you can afford Within what you're allocating to that card, yeah, it t- this quality quantity. That's a great phrase. I might make it my favorite too, Stephen. Yeah, uh, super well said. Me. Love it. Yeah, exactly. Well said. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, we thought we had James Justin Vick says consolidate. My cards are multiplying faster than bunnies in the spring. I love it. <laughs> I love it. And I think we're gonna end with this comment here as far as like discussion points go. Justin Vick says, or sorry, Carlos L says, what do you think about autographs on vintage cards? Do you think it adds to or takes away from the card? Nate, I'll let you go first. 
Yeah, um, that's that's something I've I've uh, you know I've wrestled with some. I, I think it adds is, is my personal view. Um, I I know there are certainly many collectors who disagree with that. Um, despite that, I it has not been a focus of my collecting. Um, I, I certainly do have some autographed vintage cards, but uh, you know, going back to um, quality quantity. Uh, it can get really expensive for, uh, you know, for, for quality autographs. And, you know, and that's one thing is that I, I really don't love collecting autographs if, if I don't like the, the appearance of it. And so, um, you know, I, I'd like for it to be a good autograph. Um, but yeah, you know, so I, I, I like them. I think it adds to the card. It's, it's not something I've tended to focus on and, you know, um, you know, if, if I look at what I rather have one Jackie card, nice card that's autographed or, or five really cool cards that aren't, you know, I'm typically taking the five. Yeah. So I understand why people collect them. I think they're really cool. I think it's neat that it's been touched by the player. Um, one thing I don't like w- within that, I don't, and I, I don't think I have any of them, but I don't like it when the card was manufactured with an autograph on a facsimile autograph. And then there's a signature as well. That that's kind of the one thing I don't like aesthetically, because I feel like it just kind of gets too busy, and the autographs compete with each other a little bit. Um, other than that, I think they're really cool. I I so agree with what you said about the facsimile. I also I always get confused. I say like, so which is the real one again? And then you know you you go back in your memory banks, you know where you know where the facsimile auto is located, and then you figure out which is the real one. You know, yeah. but you're not looking at, at them closely, obviously. Right. Uh, my thoughts to Carlos L's question is I, what do I think about them? I think, I think they're cool for people that like them. For me, they're, they're, they're just a no, I'm not interested in them for my personal collection. I want my cards the way they were out of the pack for the most part. And if I want a player's autograph, I will try and obtain that on something different than their rookie card, especially when it comes to vintage. But there is a huge movement towards autograph vintage rookies these days or autograph vintage cards. I respect it, have no issue with it, but I'm not going to be taking part in it, um, at least for quite a while, unless my tastes change, which could happen. I allow my taste to change over time. Uh, thank you, Chris C. Appreciate that. And I want to address Justin's comment. He says, no tears have been shed yet, Jeremy. The emotional roller coaster has only gone up, up, and up. And I have to tell every, and this is for you too, Nate, but we didn't even, like, I usually, every episode, this is episode, what, 147 of Sports Cards Live? Um, I always get through my notes. We didn't even hit, we didn't, after I asked you about your 48 Leaf Baseball and Dwight Good and Eric Davis, I haven't looked like they're here, but I haven't even looked at my notes. It's the first time that's ever happened. It's been the easiest show ever. The, the chat has been so awesome. The questions have been so good and the conversation has flowed so well that it's just it's good. a couple of guys talking with, with all, all sorts of great prompts for us to talk about. So it's, it's been great. Exactly. Exactly. This is, uh, I think the first star of the night goes to the chat. Uh, they killed it tonight and I want to thank them. I think a lot of it has to do with you, Nate, that, you know, you're just a, an easygoing collector. And uh, and I typically am too a lot of the time, just not when I'm doing this show and I have on, you know, the industry insiders and other content creators and that. But these 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 collector uh, episodes are certainly my favorites and I uh, feel like getting back to my roots with them and happy to have had several of them lately. So uh, this has been great. But yeah, ju- uh, Justin, like we didn't, 
I might have to retitle the episode because we didn't even talk about what it's titled, which is the emotional roller coaster of collecting. I mean, we did touch on a few things here and there, but um, but we didn't get like I'll re- I'll let people I'll just read what I had here. This is what was on my notes for the emotional roller coaster. We had when you see a card hit the market for the first time that you really want. What what's that? What's that feeling like? Uh, you know, watching it every day. The days can't go by fast enough. You wait to bid and then you have to find out, did you win it? Like this is the emotional roller coaster of buying a single card even. Then you wait for it to, to arrive. You open up for the first time. You share it on with your hobby friends. The whole emotional, the whole emotion about um, mail days themselves. Like, yeah. like just the, that whole process, not getting a card that you highly covet, being outbid, forgetting to bid, how you can beat yourself up. I mean, we forget to bid all the time, right? I think we all do. Yeah. The whole grading, submission, preparation, yeah. sending it, receiving it back, and the emotional, the emotions of of getting grades that are lower than you expected because standards are moving around as time goes by. Um, and there a few more, just the general climate of the hobby on social media. We had that on the agenda. Um, when you land a card you love, this was a fun one. We'll get to these another time, Nate. You'll come back. When yeah. you land a card you love. Can it make you question some of the cards you already have that I don't love these ones as much as this new one? So does it make those ones become less important to you? And this is just how I think we think about right. these things as collectors all the time without really framing it at all. Yeah. And then and then marching, watching the market cycle up and down over years or within weeks or within days. Uh, those are some of the and I know it would have gone more, but we'll get to those another time. Yeah, that sounds good. And, and Jeremy, on the emotional roller coaster, one one big thing, too, and I think it's not a huge part and not even a big part of how you and I collect, but, um, you know, it's a huge part of the hobby and the hobby roller coaster is, um, breaking, you know, opening wax, right? Like that's, that's kind of one of the really sort of foundational roller coasters of the hobby. And more often than not, it's disappointing for, for people that, that do a lot of it, but boy, when you get that hit, that's, um, it's a pretty special feeling, right? So no, no doubt. Yeah, I'm I'm guessing you don't bust a lot of wax as as good I don't guess. either. But good yeah. guess. Good guess. No, I no, I do not. I, I I've always called myself a sharpshooter. I'll let I'll let other people pay the breaker tax and I will buy from them for you know down to 10 cents on the dollar sometimes. Uh I love buying collections from from people who break a lot because yeah, you know, you're getting a nice cross section of cards and uh and usually you're getting it at a lot less than what they had to pay for. Not that I like that. I don't like people losing money, but you're usually getting good deals and they usually want to move them quick. So yeah, it's a, it's a good way to buy inventory, if you will, buying, yeah. buying inventory at wholesale. But no, I don't break. I've done my share, but I don't do a lot. Dallas Mooney says Aud- audience participation record on show 147. I'll, I'll qualify that by saying not for overall um, like comment volume, but quality quantity. We have qual- we had quality <laughs> quantity tonight from the from you guys in the chat. Steven says, appreciate the conversation, guys. Happy I found your channel through Hobby Palooza. That's really cool. Looking forward. Yeah, look, uh, ha- really happy to have you on board, Steven. And um, we'll see you again uh, for sure. Welcome, welcome to the Sports Cards Live community. All right. And with that, we are going to wrap this up. Nate, you good? You good to wrap up? We're an hour 55 minutes. It feels like 10, literally. What a what a what a great episode from, from my perspective, at least. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. I'm, I'm good to wrap up. I re- really appreciate you having me on. And, um, you know, it's just, it, we're all 
and you and I, and I think everyone here is just so passionate about it and has so much fun doing it that for me on a Saturday night to come on and spend a couple hours talking about cards with someone who thinks about them similarly and collects similarly and, and a bunch of great people interacting with us. I mean, it's nothing is more fun for me than that. So I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you for the, for that. And, uh, I, well, you said for people who think about cards the way I do, it's like nonstop. I think about cards, <laughs> yeah, that's, right? That's one way to describe it. For yeah, sure. <laughs> I just brought Carlos' comment because he makes a great point. Breakers release the product into the wild. I am very thankful and grateful for all the breakers because otherwise, all the a lot of these cards that we all covet would be uh, would be inside their original packaging for sure. Yeah. James says quality over quantity. Chat definitely the case tonight. And Grotman says, feel bad for whoever has to follow this great episode. Thanks, Grotman, which is you sort of. So again, everybody, thank you for joining next Saturday on the show. The early episode is uh, is Les Edwards. He's known as Leslie Snipes on Instagram, uh, a, a hobby, good, good hobby friend of mine and a great collector. And then on the late show, uh, Grotman right here is coming on with his dad to join the show. Looking forward to that. And that'll be a nice, relaxing evening there guys if you are not yet follow nate on instagram you can see it on the ticker right now at in cardboard veritas didn't even ask you why you call yourself that really quick i gotta know really quick you know it's a takeoff on the in vino veritas latin phrase in wine truth and so you know talk about our obsession with it and always thinking how much fun we have with with the hobby so you know, it, in cardboard truth, you know, I've had had just a lot of fun, a lot of revelations. And, you know, I collect with my son and we've had just great times doing it. And so it means a lot to me. I thought that was kind of a cool little phrase and way to reflect that. So. It's a great name. It's catchy and it, it sticks with you. I'll also mention tomorrow on Collectible Live on the Sports Cards Live YouTube channel right here, seven o'clock Eastern. I will be interviewing Jordan Gilroy. He is the consignment director at Leland's Auctions, and that will be for collectible live all right that's it everybody thank you so much for joining us tonight this was this was thoroughly enjoyable um just i can't say enough about the chat and you nate tonight thank you so much for joining nate you hang tight right there everyone else we will see you again hopefully tomorrow on collectible live if not next saturday on sports cards live have a great week ahead everybody thanks again this was awesome thanks Jim. seeking the truth never gets old Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.